Welcome back to the 197th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including Argentina's inflation and how we can explain it in one chart, how Wall Street is losing one of their favorite regulators and he may be going to one of the companies he used to regulate, and an interesting article talking about Kevin McCarthy kind of going off on the current system in Washington. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive, ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So if you were a country, let's just say you're Ecuador, and you're dealing with a huge monetary crisis, and you have two ways forward. Either you continue to lose value, your currency is becoming debased, and you no longer have a citizenry who really believes in the system that you're purporting to uphold, or the second option is to completely get rid, basically say, hey, no, our currency is worthless now, and it will be a short-term shock, but we're going to go to something like the U.S. dollar that's a little bit more reliable, even though that's maybe a little questionable today. Of those two options, which way are you going? One's definitely doom and gloom, but at the end of the day, even if you believe that, hey, we're just going to keep going with this inflation, you think that's the better route, at least people won't have that temporary shock. They're used to the current high inflation, and maybe they'll be less willing to blame you and say, oh, it's systemic issues overall. So of those two, which would you choose if you were the leader of a random nation? Well, we're going to learn about what Mr. Malay uh, is going to do in Argentina. But in order to talk about the first, we have to really understand why Argentina is in this situation that it is in now. So our first article comes from FEE.org, Argentina's Inflation Explained, in brackets, in one chart. So the author starts off this article talking about a very specific story that was also mentioned in the New York Times, but it really gives us an insight as to the current state of mind in Argentina. Quote, Marcelo is a butcher in Buenos Aires, where he works in a white tiled room surrounded by dangling hooks, slabs of beef, and signs that read, Long Live Freedom. He live streams prices on Facebook daily, But like many merchants in Argentina, he uses chalkboards in his store so he can update prices throughout the day as pesos lose their value. The New York Times, which recently interviewed Mr. Marco, reported on the inflation that has convulsed Argentina and led to the rise of Javier Millet, who last week became Argentina's first libertarian president and arguably the first libertarian president in the world or in modern history. So... You know, this is the the plight that people go through when inflation is soaring high. I mean, if you're a student of history or you just pay attention in your history class, you are sure to know the picture of somebody taking an entire wheelbarrow, an entire wheelbarrow of marks during the hard times in Germany in the early 1900s in order to get their food ration for the day or the week. And you're starting to see certain trends like this in Argentina as well, where every single day, the second that people get money, this was also another report from the New York Times, when they get money, they either spend it immediately, so they lock in the value, or they go and get a different currency like the U.S. dollar, which is something we're going to talk about here in a second. But 
the fact that they are going out and buying something immediately, one that spurs inflation, it keeps a lot of money in circulation, and therefore the money supply is constantly, uh, I don't want to say expanding, because that's not just from them buying things immediately, but it's hard to take that money out of the system and actually shrink the money supply, even as government would create or print more money. So when you have these sort of factors in place and people don't trust the currency, then they want to get rid of it. And then the government's like, oh, well, okay, hey, in order to pay off some of our debts, in order to keep these social programs running, we're actually going to print more money. You're starting to get hyperinflation. And by starting, I mean, this has been going on for quite some time. The article outlines how long this has been going on. Quote, to give you an idea of how hard Argentino's peso has fallen, today a single U.S. dollar purchases 1,000 pesos. In 2019, a dollar bought 48 pesos. In 2011, a dollar could buy or could be exchanged for 3.45 pesos. So I went to Argentina when I believe it was fifth grade, so that would have been 2000. Uh, 12, nope, that would have been 2010. So when we went to Argentina, we're sitting somewhere roughly around a dollar for 345 pesos. I was like, oh yeah, that's great. No big deal. Now, if I was to go back and trade in that exact same dollar, you're going to get a thousand pesos. That means that, okay, can we just, we, we need to take a step back here. That is so, so awful. And it's not like the U.S. dollar is doing uh, the best in the world. It's doing quite okay after the whole pandemic incident. But the fact that the peso is a 1,000 to 1 for the U.S. dollar, that means that since 2011, it hasn't lost its value by double, triple, quadruple compared to the U.S. dollar that's roughly around 260-some percent how much it has lost its value compared to the U.S. dollar. So you can see why people are shoving some of their money away and trying to hide it in other foreign currencies that they don't think are going to lose the value compared to pesos. Because if you exchange your 1,000 pesos for one U.S. dollar today, and then in a week, that $1 is worth a thousand five hundred pesos, then you've actually made a tiny bit of money. Now, of course, everything else around you in the economy, the prices are going to go up because the peso is worth less. But maybe, maybe through a little bit of arbitrage, through storing your money in a different market and then selling it back when you can make a little bit of a profit, maybe you can actually get away with buying some more things that you could, or you can just keep the U.S. dollars until something happens to the peso outright, and it's just completely worthless. There are lots of different options here. But it's just really, really hard to see a country go through something like this and not be able to turn it around, because you're not just damning the people that live in Argentina right now. You're damning the next generation. They have no ability to store their wealth. Here in America, even though it's not great right now, even though the inflation's a little bit higher than most savings account rates, you can still put some money away and expect it to at least have 80 to 90% of its value in 10 years, more or less. It would probably actually be a good amount less than that, but we're going to pretend that you know economic conditions at least come back into control as we've seen inflation year over year starting to drop a little bit versus 
a young generation in Argentina that they can't save any of their money if they want any value because we've seen over the course of 10 years, they have, which is just insane, something that used to be worth 345 pesos is now worth a thousand pesos, and that's one US dollar. Meaning that if you had that 345 pesos that you made uh, 10 years ago, you have lost so much purchasing power, and it's insane. So to believe that the next generation is actually going to be able to build any wealth, going to be able to buy a house, and they're not going to have to be stuck on these government programs, that Argentina is inflating its currency in order to support, it's just a downward spiral. And the election of Malay is supposed to be a real fu to the system it's the next generation holding up their middle finger and saying hey you have damned us and we are not going to stand for it anymore and it is absolutely a revolution done through democratic means and you know revolution may be a strong word but it is an upending of the current status quo and it's something that we like to see it, not going to pretend that, oh, you know, it's all roses and gumdrops and rainbows. No, but at the end of the day, the people are standing up for their future by electing someone who is making promises that they can handle it. Will Malay actually be able to handle it? Um, probably not. Probably not. But at the end of the situation and the end of his presidency, if it's any better than it is now, if he's able to slow the inflation, if he's able to turn the corner and get him in the right direction again, maybe there's hope for that next generation who put him there. They don't probably expect him to be around forever because the other more left-leaning parties are probably going to come back and say, no, 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 no. We have this system in place, and you can't just get rid of it. But if Malay is able to actually make substantive moves and then actually demonstrate that at least some of his policies could work, he could create another movement of more right-leaning or libertarian party members who win in the Congress the next time. And then maybe we'll see this younger generation feel a little bit of hope again. I know I said, well, maybe a lot. I know I gave lots of generalizations. It's a far shot kind of idea. But when it comes to this inflation that Argentina is facing, it already looks dismal. So you can see how getting someone radically different into the system doesn't seem like such a bad idea to this younger generation who's like, you know what? At this point, we will try anything. So... I wanted to talk about the context beyond Argentina because I talked about how the U.S. is dealing with some inflation. And there are other narratives going around that it's more than just government spending. It's more than just lack of trust in the government and the fiat currency that they're using. Uh, quote, both in the United States and Canada, two countries that have struggled with surging consumer prices since 2020, politicians have argued that inflation is the result of greedy corporations who are price gouging customers. Quote, it's gr corporate greed, pure and simple, Senator Elizabeth Warren recently said. I've got a plan to tackle their price gouging and break up big monopolies that hit families with higher costs. In Canada, lawmakers, uh, who cares about Canada? They're going after grocery stores, let's put it that way. Quote, to the Times credit, the paper doesn't entertain the fastidious notion that Argentina's inflation is the result of greedy entrepreneurs and for good reason. Anyone seeking to understand Argentina's inflation need only look at its money supply in the recent decades. And it goes on to say, 
1990, guess how many pesos were in circulation? We're looking at maybe 711 billion. Guess how many are in circulation today? 2.5 trillion. So imagine this. Imagine that there are uh, 10 different stones out there, and each stone represents uh, a unit of value. You can buy one loaf of bread. And the people who want the stones are like, oh, the, these stones are, you know, they're not necessarily all out there. They're a pretty rare supply. I'm willing to exchange one loaf of bread for one of these stones because there are so few of them and they are so rare. Well, now somebody comes and adds another 15 stones. And the people who were selling the bread, they're like, okay, you know, I, I it's still pretty rare. I'll give them three-fourths of a uh, loaf of bread. And by the time you dump an extra hundred stones into the system, these people are saying, oh, these stones are practically worthless now. I mean, they used to be so rare. They used to actually mean something. Now they're just a, a normal commodity. Uh, I'm going to actually only give a person a tenth of a loaf of bread, or I'm going to give them the crumbs after I cook it. As you put more, whatever the currency is considered, fiat currency is, into the system, it has less value. And that's not to say that, you know, if you slowly do this, if you slowly add just a little bit of money into the system, it won't work. That's what we've been doing for a long time. And it's mainly for GDP reasons. And that's why you still see prices going up over time even though, you know, inflation adjusted, they're practically the same. But when the money supply is so large, when there is so much money being circulated, and therefore these products, you can actually charge more money for them because people are getting paid more, there's more stimulus checks when it comes to what the government's doing, then you don't necessarily see the stopping of that until you start to tighten the money supply. And Argentina hasn't necessarily done that. They just keep on printing and printing and printing and giving it out in welfare programs. And they give it out, you know, as like food stamps, which, you know, a noble cause. But guess what? If the government is footing the bill for food stamps, then corporations and other companies can say, well, the government, they really want to help these people out. They want to make sure that they're eating. They're under a certain income. So we can actually raise the prices ever so slightly because we know that if anybody's going to be able to back it up, it's going to be the government because they won't let themselves fail. But then guess what? In order to keep up with those new prices, these large and bloated inflated costs for all these programs, they print more money and they start to devalue the currency even more. Therefore, the prices for things have to go up. You see exactly where I'm coming from. It's not an endless doom loop, but if not managed correctly, it will lead to the situation that is going on in Argentina. So that's the one simple chart they were talking about. If you want to see the chart, go to the article. It'll be linked in the description below the like and subscribe button because I think it just visualizing it actually gives you a solid idea of what is going on. So speaking about uh, money flows and government interaction with money and so on and so forth, we're going to jump to our second article that comes from prospect.org. And it is, uh, well, I wouldn't say it's a full-hearted endorsement of the policies of the Wall Street regulators. Uh, it's maybe a little bit cynical about their practices. But guess what? One of the largest Wall Street uh, regulators is jumping off the train, and he is going to go make his money in the private world. The headline reads, quote, Wall Street's favorite financial regulator may be looking for a new job. And 
like I said, comes from Prospect, and I want to read you the first paragraph because it gives us a little bit of uh, understanding of what they're trying to get at here, and it's part of their revolving door project. And I don't always love what uh, Prospect is doing, but at the end of the day, this is a good project. This is good to highlight the way in which lobbyists and regulators they you know come from the same places or very often they switch places some of the top regulars go into the uh, private sector and then some of the private sector people come into the public sector depending on who's in the office so i just want to show this i don't want to say symbiosis but this relationship that exists between all these different people that are in the same industries just on the different sides of the public and private fence Quote, amidst his push to loosen regulations on Wall Street's derivatives trading, Commodity Futures Trading Commission Chair Rostin Benham is rumored to be eyeing a job outside of the government. There is speculation that Benham, who has spent most of his career in government, is considering leaving the CFTC years before his term expires to pursue a job in the private sector. Top regulators make good money by any objective standard, but Benham's salary is a penance compared to what he could be making lobbying, consulting, or working directly for industry. After all, half of the point of spending the better part of a decade pushing a weakened regulatory environment is laying the groundwork for a post-office buccaneering career. Now, I do feel like that is overly, overly cynical on their point. Uh, yes, oh yes, he's only doing these weak regulations that I don't agree with because he knows someday he's going to get into the private sector and he wants things to be easy for him when he gets there. Uh, I think maybe if someone's truly malicious, that could be their intent, and I wouldn't put it past some of these regulators. But I'm going to try to err on the side of believing in his better judgment, believing that he actually believes the different regulations he's put in place and the more soft touch that he has tried to use is actually beneficial for a lot of these industries. And the reason I want to believe that is because I don't like the idea of full malicious action on the part of government regulators. I don't want to believe that they are that scummy. And this is why the revolving door project is important. Whether or not you 100% agree, at least identifying these situations so then we can identify what his ideas, his position, his feelings on the matter are, having an understanding of all of these things is going to be very important. So when we call out these sort of moves from private to public sector, and then we actually investigate, well, you know, has he made any claims behind the scenes? Has he made any promises to the regulators, or sorry, the people being regulated when he was a regular regulator? Did he make any of those promises? Did he say that he wants a particular job in a certain industry? And then we check out whether or not that he actually was a side dealing with them or having backroom negotiations with them while he was in office. And let's be clear, I'm not saying like a legal investigation. I'm saying a journalist investigation. You know, putting a journalist on the beat and actually having them seek the truth like journalism used to be about. So this is the beginning of the lead and it needs to be developed a little bit further. So what is the top pick? So what are these authors arguing that he'll probably go into. There's a top pick that I want to go over, and then there is a, a, the next one down, which is, it's a possibility, but 
Uh, I don't see it as very likely, and it's mainly because of the way they frame it here. Quote, it may seem unseemly for the CFTC chair to go directly to work for firms trading in the commodities he has recently regulated, but let's be honest, this happens all the time in Washington. And yes, I do agree with this one. It's, hey, oh, I was just regulating or I was just working with the Pentagon on the military budget. Let me go work at Lockheed so that I can uh, you know, exploit my, not exploit, use my connections that I have built there over the years in order to seek per professional benefits as well as monetary benefits as well as help the company thrive, so on and so forth. And that's why I think if you are any sort of regulator, if you're any sort of senator, if you're on any sort of special committee, if you have anything to do with your little hands in the cookie jar in the government first, and then you transfer into the private sector, then I think there needs to be limits on this. Maybe five years, uh, maybe a salary cap or something like that. Even though that seems really invasive on the government's part, I don't necessarily love that one. But maybe saying that, hey, you'll be locked at your government salary for another four years if you go directly into these industries or lobbying industries. Honestly, the best option there would be a ban outright, but we might have to explore other options. Now, if you want to come from the private sector into the public sector, I think that in advising positions, you can do that almost on the regular, mainly because we don't want to limit the amount of expertise that we can have in the certain fields and tell us the up-to-date information that not every single government regulator is going to be informed about. So they should be able to come in as advisors, and that would probably be a non-paid position. And then if it's coming from the private sector into the public sector to work, I would say give it about two years because you're obviously taking a pay cut. So there is less incentive to do it, even though you could argue that, well, they could go come in, they could push their agenda and then leave back to the private sector or be on the board of certain different agencies once they get out of their life of service. So that argument doesn't, you know, ring completely true to me, but I understand the logic of it. So maybe, like I said, a shortened amount of time. So two years, because like you said, if you're coming from private to public, you could be pushing an agenda, but you're also losing a lot of money more than likely. So I think that's a great dissuader for anybody who is not genuine about fixing the problems. It is more about self-benefit for their own career and just trying to, uh, you know, help their industry out, get out again, and then go make their bukus of money in the industry. So this is the first one. I kind of cut it off here in the middle. They're suggesting that he'll probably go into, uh, you know, a big bank or any other thing that actually trades in commodities. I think it's probably pretty likely, but he is also a trained lawyer. And that's why the second one it has a little bit of truth to it and maybe a seed of the possible. Quote, seeking a similar cash payout to the a Wall Street firm without the clear corruption of giving Citibank to sign your paycheck, look no further than big law. As a lawyer with the significant experience in both the legislative branch and the CFTC, Benham could field offers from multiple law firms with significant D.C. practices. The veneer of separation between the client and the lawyer is often enough for those unable to stomach the conflict of working directly for the industry that they used to regulate. So it is very well possible. I don't know if he wants to stay in D.C., though. I think that he wants to get out because when you've been working here long enough when you've been working in D.C., yes, I'm actually currently in D.C. right now as of recording this. When you're in D.C. long enough, you want to 
get away, have a little bit of escape. Maybe you want to go work in New York, have a nice penthouse. Maybe you want to be taken off the uh, New York beat and you want to be taken to another large city where you have a large presence at one of the banks and you could actually be a regional director rather than a pure executive at the corporate office. Maybe that's what he's looking for. It's probably would still pretty pay pretty well in the region, you know, region adjusted, that kind of thing. And he would be able to have a pretty nice life afterwards. It's a question. I don't know if it's 100% true, but the reason that I wanted to go into this article is to highlight the revolving door, to bring up the revolving door project and ask us if any of you out there, if any of you want to do further research on this one, you're aspiring for a story, you're just really curious and you want to hold people to account. I'm not saying there's anything there, but there very well could be. So see where he ends up and do a little bit of investigation and maybe you'll be the one to break the story and you'll be the one to keep people to account. So with all that said, let's jump to our last story. It's a really quick one. It comes from Daily Kos. And the title reads, and yes, you're going to hear it 100% correct, Hell Has Frozen Over and Pigs Are Flying. So <laughs> this was a uh, repeat or an analysis of a article that Mr. Kevin McCarthy, the former speaker, put out there. And he also did a little bit of a, a speech. And it's... <laughs> It's just kind of funny to see where we've come, because if you haven't heard, uh, Mr. Kevin McCarthy is backing down, but the Daily Cause has a, you know, when I say backing down, he's actually going to leave his position in the House. He's going to stop being a congressman altogether. But I want to read you this one quote from it, and then we can expound from there. Quote, but as this article says, don't get too excited, though. McCarthy participated in the debate three weeks after his fellow Republicans had ousted him. He wasn't bravely speaking truth to power. He's just making a slight dig when no one else is going to say anything about it. I suspect he's only saying out loud what many members of the GOP would be thinking, but are too cowardly to say. Not only does the video clip show the newly ousted Speaker of the House paying the Democratic Party compliments, but he's also lamposting his own party for its lack of diversity. So he's even bought into some of the diversity talk that's out there about how the Republican Party, you know, it's not diverse enough, it's not uh, appealing to all the segments of the population that it very well could. And this is the, the speak of a man who is hurt, who feels that he was doing the best of his ability, that he was doing his job, and he was trying to serve not only his constituents, but also the entire nation, and feels wrongly convicted for his actions. So, honestly, uh, I want to see where McCarthy ends up after this. Is he going to go start a, a firm in California? Is he going to start a nonprofit? Is he going to be picked up by uh, a lobby a lobbying firm in D.C.? There are lots of options for this man, but uh, whatever he ends up in, it is probably not going to be the most uh, pro-establishment Republican, or it might not be the most pro-MAGA Republican, depending on who he feels like actually slighted him the most. So we're going to see how all of that one pans out. Just an interesting one, you know, the tirades of a man who feels as though he has been unjustly um, persecuted is probably the best way to put it. All right, so now we're going to jump to our daily delight that comes from the U.S. Sun. 
Pup and away, pup, pup and away. An eagle dropped an adorable puppy in my garden, so I adopted it when it grew into something very different. So, you may be thinking, wait, hold on. First off, an eagle dropping a puppy in my backyard. Second off, what do you mean it grew into something very different? We'll get to both of them. Quote, a hungry eagle had been flying over a woman's house, clutching the terrified pup in its talons when it decided its prey would not be worth the effort. So, it dropped it. And the woman picked it up, trying to nurse it back to health. I mean, imagine you're just chilling in your backyard. You're doing the garden. Maybe you're cooking up some burgers. And then, plat, you have a dog suddenly in your backyard. And you're like, what the heck is going on here? I mean, I would be absolutely baffled. Not only did I... I mean, if it was really small enough, I could see how the eagle would pick it up. But I'm just happy that the pup actually made it out alive. Uh, but there is more to the story here. Quote, but she soon sensed something was amiss as the creature named Wandy began to look more fox-like. So she did a little bit of extra research. She took it for some DNA testing. And when the result, quote, when the results came back several weeks later, it was revealed that Wandy was 100% pure Victorian Highlands dingo. So, I mean, hey, not only is there one twist, but there's two twists. You got a dog that just appears out of nowhere. You find out it ain't a dog. It's actually a, well, I guess technically a strain of dog, but a wild dingo can be dangerous, so she had to take it to a reserve, uh, a preserve, but they got Wandy all figured out now. He's doing quite well in his new home. And if you want to see any of the cute photos of Wandy or read any of today's articles, like I mentioned before, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine. And down there is the link to the Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. It's a little bit less formal, a little bit less structured, just kind of saying things that come to the top of my mind, or if I'm reading something really interesting and trying to develop an idea, that is where you're going to hear it from me. So if you want to check that out, please go down there in the description. So with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.